Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about supporting The Tally Room as a donor via Patreon. This podcast and the website that it is a part of are only made possible by the support of donors via Patreon. We're entering a busy period of Australian elections, so I'm going to be asking for people to consider chipping in if you're in a position to do so. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing tomorrow's election in the Northern Territory. I have two guests today. My first guest is Kevin Bonham. Kevin is a freelance cephalogist who analyzes election counts and polls at his website. Hello, Kevin. Good morning, Ben. My second guest is Duncan McDonnell. Duncan is a professor of politics at Griffith University, working, amongst other things, on Indigenous involvement in Australian political parties. Hello, Duncan. Good morning. We're recording this podcast on Friday. The Northern Territory election is due tomorrow as the first term Gunner Labor government will be seeking re-election. Labor appears to be the favourite to retain government, but that expectation isn't based on a lot of data. We only have one territory-wide poll this year, a UCOMS poll in June, which gave Labor 34% and the Country Liberal Party 29%. This poll puts both major parties on a significantly lower vote than they polled in 2016, but the drop in support for the CLP is greater. Kevin, what else can we use to judge expectations about what might happen tomorrow? As you mentioned, there's not a lot of polling to go on. There's one one polling of the of the uh, the Greater Darwin area, that Newcomers poll, and there's various internal polling. Some of which is quite lavish in its detail, but it's only it's only internal polling, and it may be uh, skewed in favour of the sponsor for that reason. There was a very good poll for the Territory Alliance that was an internal poll. One source of information that I think is is useful is uh, is history the the uh, the history of the parties in the Northern Territory doing uh, better when the uh, when the their party is in opposition federally, which is also something that we see in state politics in Australia generally. It's a major pattern, and I've found that it, that it exists in the Northern Territory as well. Duncan, what's what's your take on what you think is most likely to happen tomorrow? Well, I think I think we have to remember that this is an election happening happening obviously during coronavirus time, and so I think that probably favours the the incumbent government because they're able, just like here in Queensland, as we'll see shortly, the incumbent government is able to to campaign more on on the immediate uh, situation and and present themselves as being defenders of uh, of the territory in this case or. In, in in my case here of, of Queensland, and perhaps not focus so much on um, some of the uh, some of the calamities that that have affected governments over over the last few years. Uh, that being the case, I think I think the ALP is is clearly in in the driving seat here. I, I would expect them just about to get a majority. I'd expect them to get probably about thirteen seats out of out of the twenty five. So I. I I, I do think that that Gunner will get back in. It's also facilitated, I think, by the fact that the CLP has been an absolute disaster organisationally since the last election. They they never really got their house back in order after the tragic comedy that was the Adam Giles administration. So it, it's really it's really labours to lose this one. Well, I was going to ask later about the Territory Alliance, but they are obviously a big factor here. This party that's sort of sort of a, a splinter from the Country Liberal Party. We don't really know how they might play out. They may win some seats. They might win some seats from that either of the other major parties is hoping to win. The fact that the conservative side of politics has splintered in this way is not a good sign 
um, for the uh, viability and the effectiveness of the CLP campaign, right? You can't imagine that them being on track to form a majority, certainly, but even um, effectively challenge Labor when they have someone else sort of nipping at their heels. No, I don't think so. And it probably doesn't it probably doesn't help the CLP that, you know, the major figures in the Territory Alliance are former CLP people. You know, it's led by Terry Mills, former CLP chief minister before he was rolled uh, while out of the country by by Adam Giles some years ago. Um, I think also that there's been a lot of bickering uh, between the CLP and the Territory Alliance over the last week, which, again, probably probably doesn't really doesn't really help the CLP that that said I, I don't I don't really see the territory lines doing that well I mean I, I I noted um Kevin mentioned earlier that poll that had been commissioned by the territory alliance and it was uh it was a uh, no great surprise that uh, I think that that one Kevin um had the territory alliance winning something like seven seats yeah, that poll had them winning at least at least seven seats, and uh, um, sort of optimistically, they they sort of modelled it as giving them a sniff of a chance of a majority. But without any hard data, or I mean, the only real data that I've seen beyond that is that that uh, Ucommerce poll and also uh, a, an opt-in for the Northern Territory News, in which uh, Mills performed very poorly as preferred uh, uh, chief minister. Um, yeah, we can't read too much into that. But but um, there's a sort of a general perception that the Territory Alliance has um, has been a bit of a fizzer, and uh, people generally don't expect it to win more than two or three seats, maybe. But um, doesn't seem to be based on any hard data. Can I raise the question of how having a third potential major party? Although I, t- I take what you're saying, Kevin, about the possibility that the TA may not perform particularly well how that changes the preferences calculation. I think we've all been raised with an Australian political system that is largely two parties and then a bunch of small parties who rarely come in the top two. And so their preferences might flow to someone, but generally it's Labor versus Liberal and that's how it works. We are seeing a lot more multipolar contests. We've seen a lot in New South Wales. We've seen them all over the country, but we are seeing a lot of them in the NT where either the Territory Alliance or Independence are um are challenging and could come in the top two. Kevin, do you want to like let's talk a bit about um how that will affect how preferences might flow and how preferences gets more complicated when there's more than two candidates who might come in the top two. So this is a um a dream scenario for uh, optional preferential voting where you run a Peter Beattie-style uh, campaign where you say the opposition parties are a complete rabble, just vote one for us, uh, except the problem for Labor is they got rid of uh, optional preferential voting, so they can't do that. Um, the uh, So Territory Alliance voters will be um, will be forced to uh, preference and they are favouring the CLP on in most seats uh, in on their how to vote cards, but uh, interestingly, not in a couple of uh, uh, interesting seats. Um, so we'll have to see what the territory alliance flow back to the the CLP is. I suspect that how to vote cards are followed quite weekly in the Northern Territory and will be quite weekly followed for the Territory Alliance, particularly the sort of uh, third parties tend to have attract more independent voters who want to do their own thing. So um, there, there will be there'll be some seats where that makes a difference. It's more, I think, also 
perhaps more likely to make a difference if there are cases where the Territory Alliance manages to get into second, where it might be able to rely on a pretty good flow from the CLP. Duncan, you've been doing a lot of research into Indigenous candidates uh, in the Territory. It appears to me that there's a number of seats where um, there are Indigenous independents running against usually against the Labor Party. Um, what, what do you make of that dynamic? Is that is that becoming more of a presence in the NT? Do you think that that's much of a threat to Labor at this election? Um, yeah, I, I think it is. I think it is a little bit of a, tra- a threat to Labor in this one. And you've got, so there's the seat of uh, Mulka, which um, previously was known as Nullumboy, where you've got an independent, Yingya Mark Guila, who is, is the incumbent. He defeated Lynn Walker of Labour last time around by really just a handful of votes. Uh, the sports bet, I, I think, has Walker as favourite in this, but I think that'll be incredibly tight. So, so that's one that, that that's one that Labour really want to win. I've, I've heard, at least anecdotally, that Labour's been investing a lot, at least in Facebook ads and so on, uh, related, to, related to that constituency. Another one where Labour might be in a wee bit of trouble is uh, against an independent is Arnhem, where you've got uh, Selena Ubo, who's actually um, an Indigenous minister in, in the current government, but she's uh, her opponent is uh, Ian Gumbala, who is former CLP, but this time standing as an independent uh, against her. And I, I think, you know, strange things have happened in Arnhem in the past. We've seen huge swings there in, in the past. So that's another one where an independent Indigenous candidate may, may pose a challenge to Labour. Overall, are there more Indigenous um, candidates running this year? No, no, it's 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 quite the opposite. Despite the um, the rhetoric of both parties in the territory about their their desire to have more indigenous candidates, we we've actually seen the number decline. So, out of the the forty nine candidates fielded this time around by the ALP and CLP, just seven of them are indigenous, and and that's the lowest combined number that we've seen in a territory election for, for a long time. Um, in, in 2016, it, it was 11, and in 2012, it was 12. Um, that, the drop is mainly due to the CLP. They're only fielding two Indigenous candidates. Uh, but Labour really doesn't have much to boast about either. It's It's got five Indigenous candidates, the same as last time. Probably four of them will be will be elected. But that means actually that we could well have in the next territory assembly, we could have only four indigenous members of parliament because if Yingya doesn't win, for example, in Mulca, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, and Gumbala doesn't win, then, then we will only have four indigenous members of the territory assembly, which would be the lowest number in quite some time. So despite, you know, Labour talking a very good game about how indigenous MPs are really important for them and the CLP saying that at least strategically, pragmatically they're important for them we don't actually see that playing out in terms of the candidate selections in the last episode i discussed with robin the history of the 2012 election when the clp came back into power and they did do very well in those uh majority indigenous or at least large indigenous population electorates in the outback and won a number of those seats but the sense we're getting both in terms of the the number of indigenous candidates they're running but also the, the word on the ground is that the CLP doesn't have anything like that present this time. They're kind of struggling just to retain their heartland areas. Yeah, yeah, that, I, I think that's true because 
you know, as I mentioned earlier, the the CLP organisationally has been has been a bit of a shambles since 2016. There were there were a shambles in government before that, and, and since then they've been a shambles in party central office. They they've gone through several territory directors over the last few years. They've really had financial difficulties. They've got very few members. Um, the donations, as far as I know, haven't been great during the, this campaign compared to compared to previous ones, and that means that they just don't actually have the resources to get out into indigenous communities and, and find candidates. You know, th- this stuff costs a lot of money to to get out there and find candidates. The likes of Adam Giles were able to do that in the past, and that's how you had people like like Alison Anderson or Jacinta Price's mother, Bess Price, who was a CLP candidate and, and eventually minister in, in the last CLP government. They had the money to get out and, and find candidates, and they took Labour really by surprise in 2012 by by, by their victories in, in, in some of those constituencies, which have um, very significant Indigenous populations. But... They, they just don't have the capacity to do that now. And I think you probably have to question whether they have the will to do it either. I wonder if the, the CLP are actually a bit gun shy because of their uh, um, experiences in government as well. You know, sort of the, the, they, they had that great success in winning um, Indigenous seats, but then that was a, also a part of the um, the incredible amount of uh, instability that they experienced in that term. And Yeah, they kind of elected a bunch of people who... Uh, there wasn't a great deal of vetting, uh, you know, people got elected in sort of surprise results and it kind of made things more complicated for them. This election is happening amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. It's probably the third major election we've seen in Australia uh, since the pandemic started. We saw uh, local and state by-elections in Queensland in March and we also had the federal by-election in Monero. Then we had the Tasmanian upper house elections uh, early this month. We have seen a general trend of a lot more people choosing to vote anyway other than on election day at a regular polling booth. So we've seen a lot more people voting pre-poll, a lot more people casting postal votes and we've seen that again in the NT. So as of uh, last night the NT Electoral Commission said that more than 47% of eligible NT voters have now cast their vote uh, in the in the election. So that includes about uh, 45.6% of enrolled voters um, who have either cast a pre-poll vote or have voted early at a mobile polling centre in a remote community. And then there's also about 1.4% of the electorate has voted uh, postal. So that is that is already a big uptick in the numbers of people voting uh, by mobile and pre-poll methods compared to 2016, which itself was a massive surge in numbers of people casting their votes early. We're waiting to see for more postal votes to arrive, but it does look like um, there will be a big increase in the numbers of people voting early. The question we don't know is how does that flow onto the overall turnout? Uh, like do we see more people voting overall or do we see um, a big drop on election day uh, there certainly does appear like there will be at least some drop on election day. Uh, Kevin, uh, what are your thoughts about the numbers that we're seeing? So yeah, the last last territory election only had about seventy five percent turnout, and uh, turnouts have uh, generally been in the sort of high seventies, low eighties for several years. So uh, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that most people have already voted who are going to vote, uh, and probably uh, voting before the day is going to make up a big. 
uh, majority of the uh, count. What we've seen in the uh, in the other elections is that this uh, doesn't seem to be uh, producing any uh, unusual results. It just seems to be flattening out the difference between uh, on the day voting and uh, and postal voting, particularly. Um, so I'm not expecting it to do anything in particular in terms of the the, the outcome, but. Um, we will see some very uh, unrepresentative and, and jumpy figures on uh, election night because we'll be seeing figures coming in from, from booths counted on the day where practically no one has voted. Well, one thing that I'll certainly be looking out for is the the turnout in some of the seats with with high um, with high numbers of, of indigenous uh, of indigenous voters. I, I did notice that. I think it was around the 14th, 13th, 14th of August that out of the remote communities uh, that they'd had polling in so far, the turnout really wasn't great at all. I think it was I think it was about half. Um, And, you know, in the territory, you know, we do we do tend to see lower turnout than than in other parts of Australia. And in the territory elections, there's. In 2016, you know, there was the there was the seat of Arafura where you actually had 49 percent of people voting. So, you know, in a, in a in a country which supposedly has compulsory voting, it's not really great when less than half are actually voting, and and that's not even thinking about the people who aren't enrolled. So, I'll I'll definitely be looking out for that in in the statistics that come out. And I would guess that uh, while the lower turnout in these electorates may not have as much of an impact on the statewide results as if it was just a popular vote contest. Um, You would imagine that the types of people in these communities who are more likely to vote are different to the types of people who are less likely. Like Most of these communities do have one or two major towns which have more regular election day voting or a local pre-poll centre where you have lots of options, whereas mobile remote polls, there's usually, you know, they fly in there's a one day where you can vote and that's it. Um, and so I would guess that that differential turnout might have a big impact on these electorates. And I certainly have heard that in the seat of Mulka, one of the big factors there is the possible decline in the white, the size of the white vote thanks to, um, thanks to some local industrial closures. I would imagine that is a big dynamic that it's not equal across the community which people are less likely to vote. So turnout levels could could have a big impact on who wins those seats. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you think about the seat of Barclay, for example, um, you know, you've got Tannin Creek, which is, which is the major town, and then you've got Baralula and a lot of remote polling places. And generally, you would expect Labour to do better out in the remote polling places and the CLP to do better in, in Tannin Creek. So that turnout is going to be really important. And as you said, you know, in some of these places, um, polling only occurs for a matter of hours, and then and that's it. You've missed your chance, and, and it's it's gone. What are you guys going to be uh, watching for on election night? Like, are there seats or particular uh, elements you're going to be waiting out for to give you a sense of how things are going, Kevin? Usually, my focus on on election night is to try to uh, try to pick up all the messy seats and make noises about how messy they are before the ABC notices. So that's uh, that's the sort of thing that I'm likely to be doing. Um, but uh, um, in terms of sort of breaking it down to into uh, key seats versus non-key seats, I think this is actually one of the hardest elections I've ever seen to do this in. It's like almost every seat is interesting. 
and um, you know, if you're sort of listing the the non-interesting seats, it's um, it's a lot uh, shorter. I don't think I don't think we'll be sort of sitting on tenterhooks about the results in Spillers or Nightcliff or Wanguri, but um, um, sort of almost every seat you can make an uh, an argument for why something uh, interesting might happen there, or at least someone else might have made those arguments, even if I don't necessarily buy them myself and you have sort of bizarre situations in um, betting odds where uh, Labor has been uh, tipped to uh, pick up pick up daily from the CLP but also to, to lose Barclay which is on an enormous margin so uh, we don't know whether those people placing those bets or the bookies are actually uh, going on anything there but there is sort of speculation to those about those seats so it's, it's interesting that you have such a range of uh, seats in play um, for the purposes of I've, I've sort of tried to break them into into chunks of seats that I'll be looking at so sort of like labor seats on small or in one case negative margins uh, labor seats on higher margins that might be interesting and everybody else's seats with the exception of spillot yeah, there's a there's a few seats I'll I'll definitely be be keeping a particular eye on. One is Daly because that's been a, a CLP seat uh, despite their their um their difficulties in, in recent times. But the uh, the sitting the sitting member Gary Higgins, who was also leader of the the CLP up until recently, he stepped down. So you know the bookies the bookies have Labour actually as favourite for that seat, which I find a bit surprising. Um, I think the CLP, if they're going to have a good election, they need to be they need to be keeping daily. So there's a candidate there, Ian Sloan. So I'll be looking at how he does. Just to clarify for people who don't know the background, it is one of only two seats currently held by the CLP, and the sitting MP is retiring, which is partly why there's um, chatter about Labor potentially gaining it, but why it would be such a shock if the CLP lost one of their only two seats. Yeah, that that, that that's right. I think it would really be um it would really be a a disappointment for the CLP if if they were to lose that one. Uh, another seat I will definitely be looking at is is Barclay, in part because I, I've I've been to Tannock Creek and I've been to Barralula ju- just last year, and um, I, I know that seat fairly well. So there you've got that's a that's a Labour seat. It's been a Labour seat for a long time. Um, but the sitting member Jerry McCarthy, who was a minister in the Gunner government, he's stepping down. And the Labour candidate is actually Jerry's uh, electorate officer, Sid Vashist, who's um, an Indian man who came to Australia some time back and uh, settled in Tannin Creek eventually. And, and he's standing against against a local lo- local CLP candidate, Steve Edgington, who's been the mayor of Tennant Creek, who's put a lot of effort into this campaign. Um, the bookies at the moment have the two of them neck and neck. So I think that that's going to be a very interesting one to watch. Obviously, that's going to be affected, I think, as well by what the turnout in remote communities is, um, right. as we've already talked about. Another seat is Mocha, um, whether the independent Yingya can can hang on there. Um, again, it's a you know it, it's a seat that was won by he won by a handful of votes last time. So Labour Labour's really looking to to take that back. There are not many polling booths to watch for election night. If you're in a remote electorate, sometimes there might only be one or two two booths. Uh, even in urban electorates, there aren't many more. There's a tremendous number of votes that have been cast via pre-poll, and then there's also the big chunks of votes cast through mobile polling. Do we have any intel from the Electoral Commission about when we might expect any of these results to come in? There has been an effort 
in other recent elections, particularly in in Monero, to commit to a certain amount of pre-poll or postal votes being counted. But, Kevin, we haven't – have we heard anything like that from the NT? I've only sort of heard indirectly from following uh, Anthony Green's comments that that the the, the expectation is that that, uh, pre-poll and uh, mobile votes get get counted on the night. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see how, how things go as to uh, whether that uh, happens everywhere or, or not. You know, most, most pre-polls, you might have exceptions like out of electric pre-polls and something like that. Uh, but we're expecting, we're expecting to get a high proportion of the votes that, that have been uh, cast, uh, counted on the night. I haven't, I haven't seen anything to suggest that it will be um, unusually messy in that regard at least by the time counting finishes whenever that is but it does mean people who are watching the count should be keeping an eye out for when those pre-poll and in the appropriate electorates also the mobile remote votes are reported before they kind of make any conclusions about what's happening in the seat Yes, I think I think a lot of things are going to be very messy uh, uh, early in the night uh, from from that perspective. Particularly if you have sort of strange swings in on the day polling booths, there's a further complication with swings from the last election is that the last election had optional preferences and this one has compulsory preferences. So that's probably going to produce some uh, some even more uh, uneven bouncing about in the booth results. And it may be that there's a number of seats that we, we don't get um, much sense out of um, until all the votes scheduled to be counted on the day accounted, uh, there may also be a number of seats that, that will have to be realigned because the uh, the, the wrong top final two candidates will be selected and that may that's often a messy process that takes a while. This election is another one of these elections during the coronavirus uh, pandemic and we've had a lot of speculation about that boosting uh, incumbent governments but if you look in the the results in uh, the Queensland by-elections, the Tasmanian Legislative Council elections and Eden Monero, I would argue quite strongly that we haven't seen any significant boost in any of those, maybe a little bit. So here's an, uh, an opportunity for something to show up but I th- but th- the problem is setting a baseline for what you expected to happen in this election in the complete absence of uh, useful polling through the term is very uh, difficult. Although it is worth saying all those other elections, in none of them was the government in play, right? We've had an upper house election in Tasmania, uh, by-elections, federal and state, where it was not going to affect the stability of the government and Local council elections, which, you know, Brisbane City is quite an important council election, but in the end, no, the the survival of no state, federal or territory government has been in play until now. But this NT election, there will, the government will be decided. So that is obviously a, a difference in terms of how people judge how the government has performed. That's right. We haven't had one before where uh, the, the stability of government is uh, in play and you know if stability of government is a factor because of COVID-19 then you'd think that this would be a situation where it, it helped the incumbent government. Yeah I, I think that, that that's a good point Kevin makes there about, about stability and perhaps perhaps the fact that you know chief ministers and um, and state premiers can can present themselves as as you know being authoritative figures who, who are dealing dealing with a crisis um, rather than having to talk about their record. Uh, I, I think that is certainly uh, 
an advantage that, that incumbents have. I mean, in the territory, I would have expected if this election were happening under quote-unquote normal conditions, Gunnar would be having to talk much more about the economic situation of the Northern Territory, which is far from good. I'd have expected you'd have to talk more about fracking, which was a very controversial decision that, that, that Labour made and maybe appealed to people in Darwin more than it did in other places. I'd have expected also that Gunnar would have had to talk about some of the splits within his own party. I mean, he's lost, he, he lost some key members of, uh, of the, Labour, the, the Labour caucus during the, the course of the last two years, and yet that's hardly even come up in the campaign. He's been able to talk about coronavirus and, and the borders pretty much the whole time. So that's about it for this episode of the Tallyman Podcast. Thank you, Duncan and Kevin, for joining me. Thanks, Duncan. Thanks, Ben. And thanks, Kevin. You're very welcome. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.